All right, I'm excited about this one, guys, and welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. Uh, I've got a woman who was the first woman, move over Peter Drucker, to be named uh, the most, let me, let me read this, secured the top spot as the world's most influential management thinker. That's, that's insane. And I'm talking about Renee uh, Maborn. And, and did I pronounce that correctly? I always get that Thanks, one. Thanks, Max. Yeah, yeah, it's Renee Maborn. Uh, Renee wrote the book, Blue Ocean Strategy, which uh, the reason I'm excited, guys, is if you're in the MBA program, you're reading that book. It's like mandatory uh, reading. Much like we have Porter's Five Forces for Strategy, uh, it is the new uh, sort of strategy management uh, book. And I think Harvard hailed it as the most influential and impactful business strategy book that has ever existed. Well, I don't know ever existed, but I think, um, according to them, it's one of the most iconic ones in the last, you know, span of years, yes. I mean, that's amazing. Four million copies sold. Mm -hmm. And then you went on to the Blue Ocean Shift. Yes. And now Beyond Disruption. Yes. Which, is this out on the market yet, or is... No, next week. Next week. So I do have a, a pre-copy. That's awesome. Okay, so we will get this out quickly uh, with an article. But I'm so interested in the evolution of this. But before we get to that evolution in, in what's uh, in your amazing life, um, give us a little background where you started, where you came from, and what led you to here. Well, you know, um, so I went to University of Michigan, and I met my colleague, who is my co-author for all these years, Chan Kim. Wait, so you guys met as students? Yeah, no, he was actually my teacher. You're kidding me. Yeah, he was a young uh, professor. Okay. Um, I went and took his class, and um, he was really inspiring. And it made me feel like, so I love learning, mm -hmm. but you meet a lot of people, and they're teaching, and you say, I like this knowledge, but that's it. But no, when I heard him speak, um, he was dynamic um, practical, um, theoretical. And so I did very well on that course. And then I ended up doing a second course, I believe, together. I did for it with him and then a private research. And then our journey sort of started. And um, here we are, like a long time later. So, yeah. So, so when, you, when you graduated, you... I guys kept in touch and or, or kept working right. together? Yeah. So when I graduated, I went and I got a job mm -hmm. at this company where I was telling you that they asked me, um, look at all these people in the insurance industry. Can you tell who's in the military or not yes. just by the way they walk? And I said, yeah. I was able to uh, largely do that. And then he came actually and did something at that company as well. Um, one thing led to another. I don't really exactly remember the way it evolved. I then went back to Michigan. We did more research, published, and um, yeah, and here we are. So that is, in uh, of course, you know, we basically recorded a podcast before we even uh, started this one. So you know, you said your father because it's Military Appreciation Month oh, uh, coming up May. Yeah. Uh, your father served in the Marine Corps. God bless yes. and Korea. Yes, he did. And uh, first of all, let me say thank you to you for your service, and. To every vet and service person out there, really, I want to thank that. And yeah, my father, um, he enrolled in the uh, Marines when he was very young, um, very passionate about it. Um, he then retired to private sector, of course, um, had a small business. But um, yeah, and I grew up hearing the halls of Montezuma playing on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Iconic. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and um, you know, and the importance of serving um, in some capacity. In some capacity, yeah. yeah, serving in some capacity, never giving up. Um, yeah, those were things I always felt uh, from him. Yes. It, you, where, where were you born and raised? Uh, in Westchester County. Uh, New, is that, I'm assuming that's Yeah, that's New York? outside of ma- ma- outside Manhattan. of New York. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're talking to a, a West Coast guy here, so yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've got to confirm that. Um, when did the concept with uh, with Chan start? I mean, did you guys say, hey, well, you y- know, you've, you've written and published some some research papers, like, hey, let's... We you know, you were, we were in Michigan at the time, and um, that's like the... I guess the mid eighties. Um, and this is when America was being hit for the first time in its history with this new global challenge. And at the time it was the Japanese and industry after industry, the auto capital of the world, Detroit was being devastated. And there were entire neighborhoods that were once beautiful, completely boarded up. When you went into Detroit, you saw people despondent in the way they walked down the streets. You were in the center of the city. You could park your car anywhere within a half a second. Tell me how you can find that in any major city. The air was so heavy. And then that was when the word the Rust Belt of America was formed. And the hollowing out of America was occurring. And in fact, they called America increasingly the hollow corporation. The jobs were all leaving. Entire towns, cities were just getting decimated. And it wasn't just the auto industry. It was textiles, it was consumer electronics, earth-moving equipment. And so in the press, what we were reading about was the hollowing of the American corporation, the best of our industrial might was behind us. We were young at the time, and it didn't make sense. And everything we were reading about was, how do you survive? And we were thinking, who's interested in surviving? It's how do we thrive? And, and yes, the competition's intensifying, but when we looked at the global economy we're reading, it's like, this is just the first step. All other countries are going to start entering this global economy. So the competition we're seeing today is tough, but it's going to start notching up even more. We're starting a new era. So we got to get learn how to get good and how to not just go down the tubes and accept that we'll just somehow survive. What is it going to take in spite of that to thrive? And then we said, okay, Everyone's talking about competing. That's all we learned about. But it was actually competition that was killing us. So we said, is that the only way? And as young people, you know, you believe, you know, Mike, you were just saying to me, no one had ever done, what do you call that, the seven out of seven? The triple seven, yes. It was impossible, but you made it possible. Well, when you're young, that is one thing. And I think that's something that is sort of like even our first book, Beyond Disruption Now, we started with, you know, a saying, a grounded optimist have the advantage because they always believe a solution is possible and a better world can be built. And you're a grounded optimist because you look at reality, your feet are firmly on the ground. You're not lying to yourself, but you always believe there's another way. That was maybe something we eternally believe in, my colleague and I. So we said, okay, everyone is really barely surviving. We're letting go of people. Everyone is, and it was a very dark time in America. But we said, let's look at, are there any companies that are not surviving but are thriving in spite of this? What are they doing? And we set out to find those companies. And we started finding out, interestingly enough, when we talked to companies stuck in what we call that red ocean of declining profits and growth, all they ever told us was, you have no idea how difficult it is. This competition is coming. My cost structure is raising. 
always attributing, which was true, but attributing why everything was difficult to the external environment. But when we talked to the companies that were starting to thrive, they were saying, you know why the movie theater is just going down? I'm like, why? Because we're not doing anything interesting. They always look to themselves as the reason that we're not doing something exceptional. If we do something exceptional, good things will come in spite of that. And we thought, wow, then that's refreshing. It's not the external world that determines my future. It is my own self-determination um, and my agency that starts to do that. And we started watching what they were doing, and that's where that concept of red to blue ocean competing to creating comes. That's that's a long answer to you. No, no, that, that's that's where it is. That that is great. So one, you, as you talk about uh, external factors, you know, one, I love taking military strategy and business strategy, which are have a lot of similarities mm -hmm. uh, more than they have uh, differentiations. But you talk about you know acquiescing your agency mm -hmm. uh, that you're not in control of your outcomes. I've found that rarely ex external factors are the driving factor in, in outcomes. It's usually internal. And, and actually, to the point, you know, Stephen uh, Kotler, who we had on for his new book, Nar Country, which, uh, have you heard about this book? He wrote a book, basically, uh, he taught himself to park ski at the mm -hmm. age of 53. Park skiing is really a, you got to start young. But after like six months, he taught himself uh, a number of tricks, basically saying, hey, there are superpowers of aging. Yeah. So it's a good book for anyone entering into their 30s to understand, yeah. like, you don't, over the, the over the hill concept is nothing but uh, a number. But he talked about how positivity, people that are positive live 7.5 years longer than those that are not. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you talk about the 80s, and, and I was just too young to really uh, comprehend <laughs> what was going on at the, uh, the time. I was born in 77. I'm not dating myself. Um, no, I'm dating myself. I don't. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to come around to this question. I recently listened to a video on a flight, actually from New York to, uh, to California. Um, it was uh, Henry Kissinger and Ray Dalio on, I think it was the Center for Strategic International Studies. Mm -hmm. And Hen Henry Kissinger said something very uh, interesting. He said, post-World War II, we own something like 55% of the world's economy. Mm -hmm. And that was never going to be maintained. He said, even with the best fiscal strategy, uh, we were never going to be able to maintain that but we could have maintained uh, a dominance with regards to leadership capital across the world. And we're seeing that decline as well. But you, you know, you said something before we started the podcast that people thought in the eighties that the U S was a sunset economy and that, that yes. power transition was going to go over to Japan or, or the East or elsewhere. So you've, you've seen this, this, this ebb and flow right now. Mm -hmm. We are extremely worried and, yes. and I think pr primarily worried about China and, and their uh, their overall GDP overtaking us. Well, they've already overtaken us, but really taking away the uh, the the advantage. Do you think this is just a driving force to increase innovation within the U.S.? We're we're, we're going to be okay. We've done this before. What what would you say to the people that are just it's all doom and gloom right now? So uh, one thing I can say is, you know, you, you can't change the world, but you can change yourself and you can make your company that it can succeed no matter what. So you don't have to ride that whole boat of America. And if everyone made their boat a blue ocean or beyond disruption, the country picks up because of that, right? So I wouldn't look at that, but I, I do think part of the issue happened is when our book came out and is out in 46 languages, a bestseller around the world. 
And that brought us around the world. And as we went around the world, it was very interesting. I would be in a country, and I would find that sometimes, look, I love my country, but sometimes when I would talk in our country, and I understand that, we know a lot, people would lean back and listen. And when I went to other countries, I noticed they always lean forward in listening. Mm-hmm. I noticed the note-taking. I noticed the energy, the determination. They, they, weren't con- they, they wanted to create. I was in one event once, I believe it was in India, and they were saying, you know, all the big global brands at the time, now this is going back 15 years ago or so, are in America that are known around the world. Korea has a few, Samsung and LG. Mm-hmm. Japan has a few. Mm-hmm. But we really don't have that many global brands. And their aim was, how are we, in the space of the next 10, 15 years, going to start building our global brands? And what I want to say is, I think in a way, sometimes like when you are very successful, and we have been, if you are not seeing what is happening around the world and what is really going on, you, you, get, you get lazy in your game, actually. And I think in a way, um, so two points to your question. One point is I think Americans, um, not Americans, I shouldn't, I don't want to um, make, make that distinction yeah, like that. Broad strokes. Broad strokes, I don't want to do that. But if you go around the world and see things, I think you realize like you got to keep your game on edge. You really do. And I, but the second point I want to say, I think China is a real issue and they're really working hard to build those companies. And, but you don't have to ride the boat that everyone else is. Start building your business in a blue ocean way or beyond disruption, as we'll talk about. And just as Home Depot and these companies we study turned the tide of what America stood for, so we went from a sunset economy to this amazing growth yes. economy. If we are all doing it individually, collectively we add up and we start doing it and moving the um, entire country or whatever region you care about. And why I say that, it's too easy when you're saying, well, they're not doing, they're not doing. But if we all do our individual part and don't worry about them, but worry about what we are doing, that is the best way to create that momentum. Um, to I'm not sure if I'm hearing you, but to really lift everybody. All, all boats rise with the tide. Yeah. Sorry, I had through the, the yeah, no, 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 there. that's that's great. But you know what I'm saying. So it's there is no fait accompli. The world is and the future is what we make it or don't make it. And so the question is, what are we making today? So we make that future a different future, right? Absolutely. And I'm not taking this uh, down a, a political route. Yeah. So when you guys went on the tour, what? It, so first off, could you guys even imagine? How uh, just the, the gravity that this book had, or was were you cautiously optimistic uh, at so, first? So you know, I tell you this, Mike, in honesty. So we had a, a series of um, Harvard Business mm-hmm. Review best-selling articles. Yes, and we had been courted um, uh, for a number of years from Harvard and other mm-hmm. publishers to write a book, and we said no. There's so many books written every year, but they're just one of many. And we thought, we still don't have a message we think we can really make a difference. And so we wrote this. Now, we were at the time, you know, you ask, how do you even say my last name? So when the book came out, it was 2005, you know, we were based in France. Mm-hmm. And you can't pronounce my last name. My colleague was Asian. And there was never a best-selling book in America written by, in business, from professors based overseas with names you can't pronounce at a business school. 
the elite knew our business school, but not the average person in SEAD. Yes. And so they say, well, you got a lot of factors working against you guys. So people were, you know, saying, let's just see. And it took off. But let me say one thing uh, that I really think, I think often people that write um, uh, uh, best-selling books or companies that create great companies, they're really focused on creating like a good book and they think the issue is important. They're creating a company they believe in serves an important mission and they want it to be outstanding. That is their first objective and everything else follows from that. It's like we didn't write a book to create a bestseller. We write a book to be proud of yes. and that we thought Impact. addressed an issue that we thought was important. Whether the world judged that or not, that was on the world. But so it's like, am I addressing something I think is important and matters? And number two, am I giving it my best to create that product that I think can deliver and communicate in a way that maybe that message is accessible? And the rest of the world takes and they decide they're your judges, not you. And I think in a great company too, you're thinking about, look, I see these issues. I see this problem. I think I can do it. I think I can add compelling the value this way for people to buy it. I think my price point needs to be here to make it accessible. Therefore, I have to figure out a way to drop my cost structure despite the conventional way. And if I do that and I can make a random leap in value for buyers and profit for myself, I'm going to leave it to the world, but that's going to be the path that's going to give me success. I don't think, like, we hope we're going to create this next Fortune 500 company, but I think the companies that build it, they're so focused on creating this great product, this great service, this low cost structure and making it work more than they hope they're going to, we all hope and dream for that big thing, but their focus isn't there. Because often when your focus is there, you're getting influenced by the media, by other people, and you're losing the integrity of your idea and what you're trying to do. So you, you want to, for lasting success, I'm talking about. Yeah. Lasting success. You know, you, it, you gotta, it's got to be something... Um, Authentic. You're authentic I, 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 and integrity that's what to comes yourself. To mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's coming from something you believe. Like we really believed. If you had been around Michigan to see what we saw, you knew you never wanted to see community like that. You knew that was in the future you wanted to help build. And like you knew people personally who lost their jobs. And let me tell you, it's easy to say oh, our economy's going, yeah, wait till you're on the side of the seat when you lost your job. Yeah. It's a very different reality. And so we thought this would make a difference. And, that, and that's how we do it. And I think the companies that do that, you know, in our book, Beyond Disruption, I was in one podcast and someone was asking me, so do you think, you know, Steve Jobs shouldn't have said to his people, let's not disrupt this industry. I said, I actually don't believe he ever said that. I think he said, let's create a product so good we make the competition irrelevant. They're not even benchmarkable to us. We do something so good. He wasn't setting out to disrupt and put people out of business. He was setting out to make a product that separates themselves so differently from everyone else. They're another plane. From a buyer's point of view, I'm unbenchmarkable. I'm so exceptional. That is what is driving them. So it's like, yeah. That would be my kind of answer to what you're saying there. No, that's a great question. answer. It, you know, when you, when you talk about competition, if you become so obsessed with your competition, what they're doing, then they actually, that's an external factor that then comes into your decision-making process and you're, 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 you're compromised. 
And your competition is setting your agenda, not yes. the marketplace. That's why every industry, every gas station looks the same. I benchmark you, you benchmark me. We both assume the other one knows what they're doing when often they're both equally like, I don't know what to do. The ocean's red. Let me look at what he's doing. So it's like the, the blind, imitating the blind in a way. So you go into every auction house in the world. They're not only the same and they keep hiring the same people, but they're on the same streets. They use the same advertisers, the amount of convergence in an industry and they play musical chairs in an industry. So they hire, you know, one company fires in the music industry or they let go and they go to the other music industry or the book publishing industry, they circulate. So it's the same idea circulating around one another, same ideas and conversations going up and down the escalators and elevators in a company. And you wanna get a fresh perspective often. And this is very important to, so you see what you didn't see before, you know, and you ask questions you didn't ask before. And you say, you know, why not? How come, how could we do something differently? Like, Okay, so they've all done it. So who said so? So wh wh just because they've all done that, why does that mean that makes sense? I mean, think about it. We used to use bloodletting. We used to, people's veins to help people. Thank God someone because said. That was the, 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 the practice that was, <laughs> that's was right. common. And, yeah. and it, that's common. And that, that's fine that, you know, but thank God someone said, well, wait a minute. Is that the right thing? Like maybe there's an alternative. Just because that's what we've always doing doesn't mean that. And so it's really important, you know, to have that. And that gets back to, again, again agency is very important. Um, and to realize that our greatest resource is the imagination between, you know, in our minds and to use that and to not outsource that to others. You know, why do we believe that they necessarily know better than we do? We can learn from others. Yes. But a lot of people don't... Um, uh, uh, sink within themselves to actually know what they think, you know, what, what they perceive. Um, it's very important, actually. There's a lot of societal norms that are placed upon us. You, in, in, I'm not going to take this inward, but my, my parents came from very little and they, you know, did very well for themselves. But the next step was to go to college. And I came from a town where everyone goes to college because not necessarily that it's earned. Mm -hmm. It's just, that's, you're going, even if you have a 2.5 uh, yeah. GPA, you're going to college because your parents can afford it. Uh, and for my brother and I, we just wanted to break the mold. We wanted to do something different. But um, Well, to your point, like you can look about, and that's like in, in all um, socioeconomic levels, like you can look at people in New York in the, you know, in the very wealthy area where they're all fighting with their kids to get into the same schools. They want their kids to do the same type of activities, even though that may not be what's good for that kid. And even though that's actually creating great stress on the parents for the economics of it, mm -hmm. for the wife to chauffeur it around. Mm -hmm. And actually, on the outside, we look like everything is right. But on the inside, we have a, you know, a child that feels they're not seen, they're not heard, they don't know what they're distinctively good at. The, the father, the mother, the bread earner is, uh, you know, feels stressed and overtired. There's, yeah. there's a lot of stress. And so we always say, like, you can apply this thinking. Am I in a red ocean in my career and in my life? And I'm just benchmarking everyone else to make sure I keep up with the Joneses. And can I not create a blue ocean for my life? What can I eliminate and reduce in what I do that gives me aggravation, adds to my cost, or takes my time away, doesn't add value to let me stand out? And what could I really do to stand apart? 
and create a profile for ourselves in our company, but in our personal lives as parents um, to create this blue ocean family where you have high value, lower cost. That's super attractive, you know? Okay. So you've gotten to my question where uh, I was going to take this. So I was going to tell the, uh, the listeners that when you read these books, albeit they may be business centric, that that's very safe to say, when are you two going to write the blue ocean strategy for life? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. We've done a few little, like when we talk to people, we even do blue ocean for dating. Are you a red ocean player? You go into a bar, the way you get the girl or the guy, you have for, to first buy, off, for, you, buy you a lot of drinks. You just dated yourself again. Nobody's <laughs> going into a bar. It's called, uh, what is it, Tinder? Okay, uh, okay, dated there. I'm dating yeah. myself. Yeah, okay, good. But, you know, you do the same as everyone else. And so, you, you know, and so the question is, what do you need to do to stand out and, you know, really capture that person with low value and, and cost and high, and high value stand out and lower cost. So we've been looking at, so we haven't started that because this was this, but it's something we've been playing with and we use in our lectures and talking. Yes. But where, what I see nowadays, sadly, is that um, I see everyone so stressed and overworked and people, you know, not having the time to have quality relationships necessarily in their personal adult relationships even catching up with old friends sometimes, and they don't, or their spouse or their partner, and also with their children. And everybody is sort of getting emotionally um, depleted despite working all the time and seemingly so busy, you know. And yet, so that's something that we have sort of been thinking about because it's like, this can't be. We've got all these bright people, and everybody, you know, in Beyond Disruption, we're talking about even secretaries. There's greatness in every human being at every level. And, you know, we just have to see that in ourselves. And so, you know, we're talking about, we're thinking about that. Um, but I guess, you know, because of your challenge about where the e business economy is going, you know, we, want, we did our next book because it came out of all the challenges to Blue Ocean, which is Beyond Disruption. How can we you know, create these mar new markets that are where there aren't any before. And it's not based on necessarily technology. It doesn't have to be new to the world. But I actually carve out a space where n nobody is playing and I can make business and society better meld together. So, no, it's, yeah. it, it, it makes uh, total, total sense. Uh, I think, it, you know, this is, I, I, I always say that psychology defaults to lazy. Mm -hmm. it, it defaults to lazy. People will always, follow the, uh, the path of uh, least resistance. Additionally, I think as Americans, uh, we view everyone else as an enemy. Uh, and, and I don't want to mention his name, but um, a, a very high up uh, Navy admiral, uh, expert on China, uh, you know, we need to stop looking at China as an enemy and look at him as a near peer competitor. Mm -hmm. um, you said you, you traveled the... Uh, the world after the, the book was released, was that just an eye opener? Just looking well, at the different cultures, their perspectives, their practices? So what I would say is it wasn't just after the book. So it's the last 20 years or something, mm -hmm. you know, going. Um, and what I would just say to that as well is, you know, that's where we were based at INSEAD in France at the time. And there so many countries are near one another to begin with. So you naturally are seeing this. And you're suddenly being exposed. And in our school in Seattle has students from all over the world. It's truly international. Mm -hmm. And you just are hearing these different level conversations and you're seeing where people are coming from in different ways. And so I think it was just a general exposure. And, you know, 
and seeing what's happening and, and meeting people and noticing differences in audiences and the eagerness to learn. You know, even when I would be, I would say, here's a commonality, small point, just in interviewing people. When I would tend to interview companies that were doing well enough, but not outstanding, um, it was often um, kind of, when you'd interview them, kind of often they're trying to tell you why they're not as average as you think, why they're better than you think. And when I would meet and interview the companies in the blue ocean, they would tell me why they're not as good as you think, how they have to get better at their game. And I thought, that's so interesting. And I remember one company, we were doing a workshop on Blue Ocean for them. And they said, come on. And they said, I'm so tough. You're so tough. You demand so much. And I said, well, listen, you know. So they say, and the guy said, so, you know, we're not as bad as you're telling us. And I wasn't telling they're bad, but I made them draw this graph, the strategy canvas, and they look like everyone else. And I said, okay, you, you think you're not as bad as everyone else? They said, that's right. I said, okay, let's use it as your tagline. You know, X company, we're not as bad, we're, no, uh, we're not as bad as everyone else. I said, you tell me how well that tagline sells. That's, let's, let's, let's start branding your company as that. And they're like, oh yeah, that's not a good tagline. I said, then why do you want to, yeah. to live up to that standard? You guys, you're better than that. So give me your best. Like, let's start thinking differently, you know? And then they do it. And here's the most exciting thing on either one of these. You find people come in, and you were telling me even like the military, we're trained a certain way. Certain people can adapt, certain people can't. People are nervous. You're asking me to think differently. There's some intuitive people can naturally think differently. Steve Jobs, I think he was intuitive. I think some people just naturally. You, you're saying nature over nurture sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Of course. No, I, I, be, I believe that, that yeah. applies. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you so, could also, I mean, we'd have a higher success rate if within the education system we did nurture this, we almost re rewarded failure. As, and I learned that one from Bill Campbell. Yeah. Um, he's like, I made it a practice and into it to reward failure, not for lack of trying, but when they took uh, calculated risk, yeah. they, they did their best, put, you know, made smart calls, it just didn't work out in their favor. So what I want to say there is that what we found, that's why our book, both of our books, are, or three books, really provide a, like a s processes and some tools to get you there. So this is the nurture over nature. It can get you amazing places. Yeah. Yes. Amazing places. But that doesn't, that doesn't um, uh, state that some people like Elon Musk, he has certainly has certain talents that, you know, he, he's blessed with certain things to see the world. So that is just like some people... You know, I, I, and I may be wrong here, but they said like John McEnroe, he just was like, even without practicing to the level of some people, he just was, he just was like, had some talent that was mm -hmm. different than others, mm -hmm. you know, and so both are true. But you, what I want to say is when we work with people, they would come in the first workshop and they're like, oh my God, think differently, get out of the right ocean, that's scary, status quo is better, I'm safe, I'm that. And then, you know, you work with them step by step, tool by tool. Say, okay, let's just see how we look. Are we like everyone else? Yeah, we are. Can we look at what the pain points are in the industry? And if we don't find any, let's just stop. So I have an exit. Okay, pain points. So let me ask you, you think if we address some of those pain points, we'd start to shift our curve from the red to the blue? Yeah, maybe. Mm, do you think it's worthwhile to find out who are all the people that if we change that, non-customers, they might want to buy from us? You think it's worthwhile to take another step? I'm not telling them. I'm asking them to tell me. You tell me looking at what we're doing together. 
And by the way, we don't find other people. Let's just stop the process. You have an exit. Worth one more step or not, you guys, because what we're talking about is growth, opportunities, income, ability to get promoted. You want to take a step or not? Because we can call it quits right now. Because if you don't want to go on the field on, on this march. I can I can drive as much as I want, but I'm not going to get anywhere with you. You'll find a way to get around it, undermine it. There's so many clever ways, right? So are you ready to step up or not? But we can right one more step. Now what am I doing? They're every step they're taking, they're learning. Confidence isn't somebody saying, You're the best. No way. That's fake confidence. You get that one weekend retreat, you're pumped, then you go back to the office four days later, insecurity comes over you. It's achieved by what you do, what you learn, what you master in your capabilities. What we find at the end, I tell people this, it's the most heartwarming thing. Is people say, I never knew my team was that good. I never knew my colleague was that good. I never knew I was that good. And it's like, it is such a beautiful moment. And I tell you, I always believe... People don't see, people don't know how good they are, actually. I really believe that, how capable they are. You know, they've been conditioned. It's like, no, you're all a warrior inside. And you, you know, it's, it's beautiful. I see the tears in, in your eyes. And hey, I, I know you and Jan, uh, you know, I, I do keynote speaking for a living. It's, it's a good living financially, but there's nothing better than receiving a note. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Especially the one six months after the engagement. That's, that's powerful. But it, so the impact is, is phenomenal, not only for the organization, but the individuals as well. You know, we tell people like, don't do it for the organization, do it for yourself. If you're not worth more yourself in the way you think, in the way um, you perceive this, because maybe you're not going to stay at that company ever, to open your own perspective, then we failed you. Like, so... You know, now, mind you now, you know, we're writing this book here, and, and this has been a long journey, so it's not this recent things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm just, this is sort of some of the human dynamics. So our book, Bluish and Shift, the second one, is based on, you know, whether it's governments or uh, nonprofits or companies, some that came to us and work with us, some that work with people that we know, some that we just read about, and then we'd call them up, and they, they said they applied Blue Ocean. We said, what yes. works, what failed, what didn't? And then that book documents companies that, and individuals and nonprofits and governments that put these ideas in practice and the, you know, um, and what comes out of that, um, what comes out of that, Mike. So. If, if I could wave a wand and, and get you guys into the Pentagon and back in the Pentagon and back in the Pentagon, then every service, DOD needs to think differently. Mm-hmm. They need to think differently. Um, that That is so... Uh, encouraging to uh, to hear but a lot of companies don't take that step or organizations doesn't matter if you're in business to bring people like you in just to 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 view in a different perspective uh utilize that it sounds like you use a push-pull method a little bit uh to, to get the most out of them i mean there there seems to be a trend where leadership development or strategy development is on a decline in terms of bringing outside parties in that's what i found 
you, you well, so we wrote our book so that you don't need us, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, um, you know, companies, when Blue Ocean came out, which was a series of Harvard articles before that, we're going back to 1997 was the first one. So we were working with companies even then to write the first book. So now I'm really dating myself. I mean, you might have run around in diapers. 1997, you were 21? <laughs> was the 20, first Harvard 21? Business Review article yeah. on this, Value Innovation, yeah. uh, uh, that became part of the Blue Ocean Strategy. So yes, it goes way back, right? So, And this is when we were working with companies. But our aim was, that's why we have like processes in Blue Ocean Strategy and in Beyond Disruption. How do you in a conversation with yourself or with your team, take these ideas, do not only get inspired, but let us show you step-by-step how you can um, look at your market. Here's a simple one-page tool, one page. So whether you have a high school degree or you went to the top schools, you're all equally on the same page. And I can start to draw this simple picture. So they're all one-page simple analytics that levels a playing field for everybody. And you can start taking it step by step. So we actually try to write them so you don't need us. And you can have that quiet conversation yourself and with your team and work on these ideas. And maybe you don't get 100% to the finish line. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, very few people get 100% to the finish line the first time. You know, like you ride a bike. You don't start riding that bike right away, right? You start, you get on the bike, you trip a little bit, you get on the bike, you keep... And then, and then you start going. But if each time I'm going a little bit further and I'm going from the red to the more blue or I'm going from disruption to beyond disruption, the trajectory of my life is changing. The trajectory of my company's opportunity is changing. And that's really profound. Um, so, yeah. You know, life is a bumpy road, actually. You know, you can look at all of our success today. You can look at all these companies. Bernie was telling you many times in his podcast with you, Bernie Marcus, they, they, had, they faced difficult junctures. We all do. I mean, Apple almost went out of business too, right? And it's a, the question is, so that's why you have to be able to, we say, take a punch. Get, I mean, get knocked down, but you stand up. You can have your tear or whatever it is, and you deserve that. It's not easy. We're human beings. And that applies to everybody. But you got to get back in and, and, you know, keep marching forward on that. Um, you you've heard the uh, Sylvester Stallone quote from what was it like Rocky Five, Four, Which where it's like it? you basically life's you know going to hit you, it's going to knock you down, but it's it's not how uh, hard you can hit, it's how many punches you can take and keep moving forward. It, it it's it's Rocky, you know, yeah. but the fact that such a just profound uh, statement, and I'll send it to you, uh, I'll send you the clip. It's just like I sent it to my son, I sent it to my daughter. I'm like this literally. Uh, from a punch drunk boxer, the character could not be more uh, more on point. Let, let me ask you because y- you said something about the market dis- dictates, and um, most CEOs, most executives are we're, 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 we're opinionated. We've got strong opinions. Uh, we're strong willed, but to what degree does self reflection, humility play into success? Because when I come up with a concept and I say, "Hey, I want to sell this product or this service." It's very hard for me to get out of my head and say, it doesn't matter what I want. Ultimately, the market is going to dictate what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that the attributes of humility and, uh, you know, really play into, uh, you know, the success of a company to, to put their opinions aside, listen to the market, and then do what the market is, is requesting more of? Well, no. 
Not exactly, because the mar- we have trained markets what to expect, and they tell mm-hmm. us, give me more for less of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're not going to come and tell you when you're a little hardware store, give me Home Depot that has electricians working on the floor that can teach me. Yeah. They're not going to tell you that. But I think really critically um, is asking great listeners, great learners, but they're great observers of how um, things are using and they're asking themselves as well, who cares besides me about this? Who faces this frustration besides me? Pain points. So they are not only it's about me. So, you know, you might be an idiosyncratic individual or some weird thing bothers you distinctively that no one else even registers, but you're just a weirdo, you know, you're strange. (laughs) And so you're you're like that, but it doesn't mean there's gonna be a market. So the real question you gotta ask is, you know, who cares besides me? Um, And then you wanna be looking at, you know, what is that leap in value I'm providing there, right? So that is critical. So I would say, I'm not sure all of them exactly have humility all the time. Everyone is different. There's all different takes on people. Yes. So there's no one stereotype, just like there's no one company type. But I would say that they're eager learners. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that they have a lot of, um, you know, we always say, uh, never outsource your eyes. A lot of people do all these fancy studies. But outsourcing is an art. And they never, like, I'm like, okay, go to a supermarket at 5 o'clock. Why are two registers (laughs) open and five are shut? And there is a long line of people. I'm like, who's running the ship here? Because this doesn't make sense to me. I don't care. I'm a manager. I'm in the back. Get on that front line and you get a cashier open. And you do that. But they're not, management is not looking at what's going on. Bernie Marcus. He's in the store. He was in the store. He was visiting. He saw what was going on. Um, I'm not going to name airlines, but I would fly some. And I was saying, like, this is first class. Have you ever wrote, written these airlines? Because if you did, like, where are you? Like, you're, you're not looking, around, you don't see what's going on. So, you know, that's part of that, yeah. So let me, let me make an observation. I'd be interested in your opinion. Uh, you've traveled the world. To I've, some extent. Let me not say I'm not, so versus vers- the average person, perhaps. You're, you're worldly. But, but, yeah. but, 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 but let me put that in context. There are many, many more people that have traveled more than I have. And Always. there are many, many areas that I haven't been to. So I don't want to portray myself as that, but I would say I've been privileged to see a little bit more than the average person. That's a blessing I've had. And that's that's your humility coming out. Mm. You've, you've probably been in more countries than I have. Uh, where I was going with that is, is sometimes, like, I'm going to use Japan. It is a service-oriented like culture. Mm-hmm. I've never seen service at such a high level. And it seems like, you know, you know I, I remember my dad saying, like, the days of Pan Am are gone. Uh, mm. And again, I can't remember flying Pan Am, but I guess the service was what was top notch. It seems like in America, and I'm not trying to pick on America, that service has declined because some companies are so big where I'm not going to name a company, but let's just say in the uh, the online space where I call the help desk and I'm on the, the I've got to call multiple times because no one's picking up or the airlines uh, because one, it's almost to the point, well, do you want to fly? Be, be lucky you're, you're, you've got a seat in economy and that you're going from New York to San Francisco. Um, here's your one drink. Yeah. And I do remember young that service was at a, a much higher level. Is it? And I understand cutting cost structure. Something's got to give. And I, it's better to have the airlines operating than not operating at all and, and mm-hmm. creating monopolies. But um, 
Again, I'd be interested in your, your opinion, having, having traveled the world with regards to service in the U.S. So every company is different, but if you ask me, um, can we do better often? 100%. Yeah. And we can 100% give our people more pride. Um, so they want to deliver and paint a picture of what excellence actually looks like. And I sometimes, um, I think we need to paint that picture and um, what that is. I think, yes, we can do better. We can do better. Um, and we should do better because we're capable of doing better. Well, don't cheat Don't cheat yourself in life, you know? You're capable yeah. of that. Yeah. I mean, well, that's the, uh, the definition of excellence, uh, the pursuit of uh, continual improvement with no finite destination. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know... Um, no matter what you do, um, and I don't care if it's cleaning a toilet, do it well if you can do the job. And believe me, when you do things well, someone above you sees that. And maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but you get recognized. And that's how opportunities open up. And so, you know, I've always looked at it, uh, it you know, we all start at different positions in life, different backgrounds. But I just think that um, dignity is doing the best at what you're doing, where you are at that moment. And if you keep doing that, that's how things open up. And yeah, I, th I think that's important. I really do. I think it's important. We, we had a phrase in the military, and I, uh, you know, leave the place better than you found it. Yeah. And you know, a great book. Did you ever read uh, Legacy about the uh, New Zealand All Blacks? No, I didn't. Oh, you've got to pick this up. The 15 principles of the New Zealand, uh, you know, All Blacks, which rugby, not really uh, an American sport, but yeah. they're, they're top notch. And, and basically they said, hey, no one's above pushing a broom. And so you'd see some of the world's best rugby players with a broom in the locker room pushing it. But they always said, leave the, uh, the place better than you found it. Uh, pride for me goes a long way. Um, and I'm not prideful enough where I wouldn't push a broom to support my family if that's yeah. what it, uh, it took. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is really critical. Now, you know, our second, this new book that we came out with, Beyond Disruption, you're saying about structure. What you find now is that disruption became, and Mike, we were talking about it before we started, at the same time Blue Ocean in the field of strategy was growing, disruption was growing in the field of innovation. Yes. And so it became you know, a rallying cry. And so, you know, people came to us in the field of Blue Ocean. They said, well, Blue Ocean is creating these new markets. Isn't that creating is innovating? So how is Blue Ocean different from disruption? How mm -hmm. is that different? Or is it just ter different terminologies coming from two different fields? And we found out, no, it's not. You know, I said, actually, when we go back and look at our data, and we've been looking at it for a long time, even from Blue Ocean, we found that, you know, disruption is when you look at an existing industry with the aim to take it down. And we found out that Blue Ocean, as you know, you look across industries, but we found out, wow, here are all these companies and um, industries being created outside of existing industries where I am not displacing anybody. And so business and society are actually better moving together in lockstep. And so, you know, executives would push back and they'd say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, you know, I want to, uh, disruption is what we know. And I say, okay, that's one way we're not, undermining that but just think what you're doing like you want to disrupt an existing industry 
So do you think all those players are just going to say, yes, please, come on in and take the bologna off my bread. You're very welcome. No, of course not. What are they going to do? They're going to fight you, right? And if I'm an established company, and I know that I'm not in a startup. A startup, it's a little easier. Mm -hmm. But if I'm an mm -hmm. established company, and I'm going to disrupt another industry, what I know is I'm going up against other big players. They're serious. I'm serious. Or if you're telling me as a boss, disrupt myself, now nah, that's another story. Yeah. Be because it's like disrupt or, you know, disrupt yourself or get disrupted. You start telling your own One company. Almost. Yeah. Because you're creating a war of attrition in a lot of... Uh, in yourself. Or, or a pyrrhic victory. Yeah. yeah. And then you ask yourself how your employees are going to be motivated in that mission because you're asking them essentially, you know, so it's, it's politically and emotionally very, very hard. So people would say, you know, how come Kodak didn't respond to digital photography? They're the ones that created it. That's very easy from the outside to look in. Mm -hmm. But when you're on the inside and all of your R&D, all of your people, your colleagues who know you respect your community is based on that. It's really hard to start to do that. So like in Beyond Disruption, we talk about how when Kunar Airlines, after, you know, the World Wars, they were the number one ocean liner bringing people back and forth across the Atlantic. And then, boom, jet travel is discovered. It's fast. It's convenient. It's flexible. And it starts going back and forth. And very rapidly, it starts taking all the travel in the ocean liners. All the other, so Kunar says it was a number one player. And it says, it tried to disrupt back. You disrupt me, I disrupt you. It goes and it buys another airline. It says, okay, I'm going to buy it. And they, they named it Kunar Eagle. If you can go back and forth on air, so can I. And I've got the resources to buy into the game. Mm -hmm. The only problem is the people in the game said, we don't want you entering. There's not, we don't want you in this beautiful, lucrative ocean. They pushed back. They got the license revoked for them to fly the transatlantic flight. So now here's Kunar. What am I going to do? I'm getting disrupted every day. My, the people going back and forth on the ocean liner are, are disappearing overnight. I tried to disrupt back. They cut me off right away, just squashed me like a bug. Now what am I do? And so instead they said, well, wait a minute. I got to think differently. And said, why do I need to disrupt? Why can't I start doing something non-disruptive? And they said, what do we use an ocean liner for to get from point A to B? They said, instead of going from point A to B, why can't we use it that the value of the ocean liner is the journey itself? We add all this entertainment, all this luxury, and we bring people to little different cities that they normally didn't do because in those days, people weren't doing international travel, really. You had to be certain classes that we can take them to the Caribbean, different places. Why don't we start doing this? And so they created the um, cruise industry. You know, today, I think it brings in $30 billion a year. It's impacted millions and created jobs. And it now is part of Carnival Cruise, but it's the only ocean liner that succeeded. But what they said is, why don't we do something differently? Why do we have to disrupt? Can we create an industry where there wasn't any? And I, I just, you can stop me, but I want to just no, give no, you, no, an, I, I want to give you another one. It's really telling. Post offices around the world are getting decimated. They're often just a cost structure for national governments, right? And you look at France. So France had that challenge because a I think the uh, postal um, letters and envelopes has been down 50% and continues to decline. We use email, we use text, or we use FedEx and UPS when we have something physical, right? So the question for the, them is, what do we do? Because they're big civil servant employees. So 
they know they can't compete this way, so they started looking, and they, they found out, wow, big problem in not addressed in society is that average French person, actually, they leave their small towns. We talked about this. Or I talked about with my taxi driver, actually, my Uber driver. Um, and the, the kids are live these busy, hectic, frantic lives when they grow up in professional. They live in Paris. They live around the world. And they never start to visit their parents anymore. They just don't have time. I would love to come, but there is a soccer match. I'd love to come, but there is this thing. And there's all this loneliness. And they found out in France, the second most trusted individual besides the baker that they buy bread from all the time is the postal worker in their town. So they started this program called Vies sur mes parents, which is um, uh, watching over my old parents. And they had it that you could sign up and you could pay for 40 euros a month that the post office person doesn't only drop the mail off but has a real conversation with the, your parent, the older person, and they find out, like, how are you doing? Do you have a problem in your home? Is there something that needs to be repaired? What's it like? How are the grandkids? And they have this communication. And then on an app, they report what they found. They tell the kid, by the way, we talk with them. And do you need us to, it's actually even developed, do you need us to go get you something in town or whatever? Again, totally non-disruptive, but addressing this real problem that's actually not only in France, but in so many areas of the world, right? And so we have this sadness where actually as you get older, you feel unseen. <laughs> and <laughs> even, you know, with the breakdown of families and stuff and everyone living far away and busy and working around the clock, they don't get together the way it used to be. And it's a beautiful opportunity they're creating. Again, did I disrupt anyone? No. And what am I doing in both cases with Carnival? I leverage my existing assets and I'm non-disruptive. With the post office, again, I'm leveraging my not and my existing assets. And people often say, oh, Janet Renee, you guys are impossible. You first pushed us blue ocean. Now you guys are pushing us non-disruptive. And we're like, yeah. And but by the way, why don't you start when you open your imagination space to discover, you know, problems that exist that we take for granted that you can solve outside of an industry or these opportunities, you'll find often you can leverage a lot of what you have. They're not far away like you think. They're right next to us. I mean, we give the beautiful example in Beyond Disruption of the um, uh, IPL, Indian Premier Cricket League. The, the, I think it's the wealthiest sports franchise in the world. They were sitting on um, the cricket industry in, in India. But, you know, cricket matches, they go for five days or, or one full day test cricket or ODI, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and while Indians are passionate, they call cricket their religion, They very few people can watch a five-day match because it's meant to actually um, test your spiritual strength to endure five days, not only your physicalness. And then they, they create this non-disruptive opportunity to say, let's create a whole new market outside of cricket that brings dancing in, lights, let's shorten it and just do it in three hours instead of five days, and they created the, you know, number one franchise, never took away from cricket, whole new marketplace, right? Leveraging what they had. These are the opportunities that we're not tapping that we could. And guess what? I don't have to take you on. Why should I think it's macho? I'm going to become a king because I'm going to beat up people. Like, why do I... If I can become a king or a queen and all this money without punching somebody with a lot of effort, 
why would I not do that? Why do I somehow feel I have to take someone down to create something that's like there's no wisdom in that? I mean, that's not to say that there aren't industries that need to be disrupted. But wow, if I can do that without taking them down, that is so much better. Like, you know, yeah. So I, I was going to ask that. Why, why, why do I feel it's like human nature to, in order to create something new, I've got to destroy something of old? Okay, so there, there's a history to that, but Mike, it also comes back to, and I don't think we're on tape on that, our beginning conversation when I told you business and everything comes from, you know, military strategy initially, because military came way, way, way before business became. Modern style of management was derived from... So chief executive uh, officers. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. corporate staff, all these words even, you know. So what happens is we absorbed and took in all of that. We made adaptations, but the key constraining factor of war is limited land. That's it. So for me to grow as a continent, I have to take land from you. And when we moved into business, we never realized that there, that constraint doesn't exist. Business land is unendingly expanding, right? And so if you look at the North American industry classification system in the last 100 years, the amount of industries and um, that have been created has expanded exponentially because we're only limited by our imagination. We're not limited by physical terrain. But somehow we have pulled that assumption into business and like kneecapped ourselves. And accepted it. And the time has come to say, actually, we don't need to do that. We don't need to do bloodletting anymore. (laughs) That's one way, but there is another way. And it's not like in Blue Ocean, competing matters. We're not saying it doesn't. You need to know how to compete. Mm -hmm. Even when you create a Blue Ocean, other people come in. You need to know how to punch. You need to know how to occupy and dominate your, your Blue Ocean. So we're not saying that. Disruption matters in certain industries. They're asleep at the wheel. They're not providing good service. You're mentioning some. And so you are saying, come in and disrupt me. You're inviting people to disrupt yourself, right? So you want to ask yourself, am I inviting people to disrupt me? That is the best question few people ask themselves. Yeah. So am I doing it? And by the way, the best defense to not get invited is if I'm creating a blue ocean. Because if I'm good... Now you think to myself, how hard is it going to be to dislodge them? I have to be not 1% better to dislodge a blue ocean player like Apple or an Amazon Mm -hmm. or somebody. I have to be a magnitude of order better to dislodge them. Because why would I skip from you to me? Right? That's harder. So that's one thing. But then the other opportunity is why can't I start thinking of non-disruptive opportunities where I don't have to take someone on so, you know, in your Bernie Marcus interview, which I was listening to last night, these are alive in my mind, he was talking about things for post-traumatic stress order that the vets have not, there hasn't been a solution. He's coming up with something there. And the question becomes, let's think more creatively for vets coming out, for their jobs, for their mental health, for other things. There are all these existing problems we've taken for granted. This is what happens. And can we not thinking about like creating opportunities for them or eradicating that, those are all non-disruptive things. And what we find in life is so many things we take for granted as the way they are, as though the way it must and will continue to be until someone steps up and says, No. No. I read the status quo. I refuse to accept it. I'm going to think differently. And that's what this is saying. Disrupt. So we're not undermining it, but we're saying, look, 
Why disrupt when you don't have to? There's an alternative path. And guess what? I don't have to. It may seem macho to destroy somebody, but you better remember on the other end are people that have their jobs, have their livelihoods. There's people that go home to their kids. And if I can create these new industries, new jobs, like esports is a non-disruptive industry, if I can create that and create jobs, and you know what? I can recruit people too. And I say, you know what? We're not in business to put other people out of business. We're in business to create what wasn't existing before. And we're in business to help business and society move together. And not in the way we spend money. I'm not asking us to be a charity and donate money. Mm -hmm. But in the mm -hmm. very way we make money, right? So I'm going to find, and that's what's the beauty of non-disruptive creation and beyond disruption is, a lot of times there's pushback, like saying, don't tell me, that's why it used to be all about shareholder primacy. They're saying like, don't, that's why they just used to do corporate social responsibility. It's a cost function in a company. And when money gets tight, what do I do? That tends to, we send to give a little bit less money. Yeah. That's natural. We have to, right? Because we, we need to survive. But what the power beyond disruption is, I'm able to pursue my economic gains in a way that doesn't hurt others and in doing so, better align business and society. But again, in the way I make money, not in the way I spend money. So the dual mandate of economic and social tends to move together as opposed to be at odds in a trade-off there. And that's what excites us. So in, in one, I sense the excitement. One, I sense the, that there is a positive nature to the message of the book. And, and let me say this. As you describe it, it's less strategy and it's more mindset. Well, no, let me, let me clarify. So, that's, two that's things. How I'm so, so my, two things you're hitting on. Number one, bingo, baby. You just really hit it. Most of whether it's red ocean or disruption, it's zero sum. My gain is your yes. loss. Yes. Yes. And actually beyond disruption is positive sum. I win, can win. win without making anyone worse off. So bingo, you hit it exactly. But also you have to understand and, 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 and push back on me. But what we found is most people say, yeah, but it, is safer to be over in the zero-sum game. So you you need a mindset, but you need a process and tools to help the average person get there. So because if you don't have that, uh, maybe I'm the intuitive person that can do that, but my question is always, how can I decodify, decodify what people that do intuitively and look at the pattern, see what they do, and create a process to help the the, what a person thinks is the average person become extraordinary and see how they can do it too. And that is why, you know, you need... So in the second part of our book, we said, okay, there is not only this idea we can go beyond disruption to non-disruptive creation, but guess what? It doesn't have to be an aspiration. There's actually... We can give you some basic tools and frameworks. How do you identify the assumptions we take for granted? Mm -hmm. Find out, you know what we're assuming, and how we can flip them. And when you start going through it, like you start to see, like we have one company we talk about. It's actually INSEAD MBAs, kid from our school. They thought, so INSEAD's a top, top business school. It's in the top yes. 10, top five, often top one. Yes. Okay, depending on the survey, globally. And the students all felt, but it's international, very international. We're not, you know, the students come from, I don't want to misquote because I don't know, but an array, of, an array of countries, unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. And they all thought that the hard task was getting in the school. But they found out that was the easy task for the ones that got in. The hard part was getting the money to fund it. Mm. 
And what you find is that when you want to get a loan, because they're very expensive, these schools, top schools, for advanced education to go alone, domestic companies don't want to fund international education because you're a flight risk. Maybe you never come back. But then I go to France, where our campus was initially found, and I want to get uh, a loan. I got accepted to this number one school. I'm bright. And they say, okay, so tell me your local credit history. Uh, well, your local job. Well, actually, I, I work for two years in America. Oh, we, 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 don't, we can't verify that. So tell me now your uh, local credit history. Well, well, actually, as I said, I was American. I don't have that. So your local co-signer who's got a lot of money to back you, I don't have that either. Oh, so I'm so sorry, you can't have it. So the guy, Cameron Stevens, and his colleagues, they had to defer enrollment to, to raise the money to be able to get into the school they got in. When they got there and they talked with everybody, they lean into the problem. They don't just say, oh, it's a problem, life sucks. They, they lean into it, very important. Often we see a problem, we see a pothole, we go, ah, no. They say, wait, wait a minute, why is that pothole not fixed, right? Mm -hmm. And so they lean into it and they start talking to everybody and say, wow, there's a real problem. Now, opportunity. Opportunity. Yes. Now, people said, well, wait a minute. If the big global banking industry didn't do it, they got pushed back. How can you do that? How can you do it? So then they start saying, okay, wait a minute, what are the assumptions they're making? So they made the assumption you need local this, local this for this. And they said, well, wait a minute. If we got into this tough top school, what, is the, uh, what are the economics when we graduate? What's the average salary we make? Really high. Wow. So we're guaranteed high, high money. And then they said, how many of us, given what we all did to get here and get this high salary, are likely to be willing to take a risk to jeopardize our credit by not paying our loan? How much would we throw away everything to get that mark on us? Actually, we're going to be the most conscientious at all. We got so much uh, uh, you know, uh, um, skin in the game. And they said, what did it take for us to even get here? We had to be top in our grades, meaning we're dependable. We show up, we execute. We were often like leaders in our uh, club or something. Actually, we have the least risk of anybody. We're not risky. We're the least risk. And they won't even look at us. And they said, well, wait a minute. If that's the case, and I rank them not based on their past performance, but their future performance, and I know for a fact what the average income is, what the average job is, because all the schools have that. Exactly. Can I not get the money that way? They flipped everything to create, you know, I think the it's called Prodigy um, Finance, and there's one called um, um, M, M, M Finance, um, M Power, M Power, sorry, um, in America. They're both from INSEAD. And, you know, the last time now, I haven't looked at it recently, um, and we did a case with them on it, but they got a, you know, a billion dollar debt financing for the students. I mean, they're growing tremendously. But this tight industry just, so we, we start to, we give you tools so you can uncover the assumptions we're making that we don't know an industry is making. So when you say there's no strategy, actually, you got to get systematic to tell you, how can I like unroll that and get down to the nuts and bolts so I can see what's been blocking that and, you know, analyze that and get much more systematic because there'll always be risk. But how do I, Mike, de-risk that? Because that's my goal, right? De-risking what I'm doing. And so 
that's what you need. And to go to one last point, I know I'm going on and I get so excited. It's, but hey, it's beautiful. Keep going. But the last part of the, so we have three steps for beyond disruption. And the first part is how do you identify these opportunities, right? And assess them. Number two is how do you find the way to unlock them? And that means that's that assumption implication table. I uncover the assumptions we don't know we're making and what the implication is so I can flip them. But then the third step is how do I realize that? And this is very important because we're really talking about one thing is, so confidence and competence as leadership, you're hitting on it really yeah. matter. But the other thing is, and we were talking about it you with us beforehand, Mike, is resourcefulness. Resourcefulness are not the resources that you have that you own or control, but those that you can leverage if you start to think differently about resources. And so we, we articulate like, what are all the resourcefulness areas you can start thinking of to be able to deliver on these opportunities in a very low cost way and fast and often better than if you use your own full resources. And this is the exciting thing for a startup or any company today in these resource-constrained environments is how do I do things in a very... So, like, I go to Square Reader. So Square, billion-dollar company today, did non-disruptive, right? Mm -hmm. They looked at the whole credit card industry. Everyone took for granted, including all of us, that, no, of course, as an individual, I can't accept a credit card. Why should I? I'm not a big company. The little micro-business guy starting out, of course I can step. That's one of the things, that's the tough part about when you're little. Those benefits come to the big guys. You know, how many things do we take for granted that a little guy doesn't have access to? And, you know, Jim McKelvey, he had his, uh, a story, sold glass, and he found out he lost a sale because he couldn't accept a credit card payment. And he found out how many people could benefit, him and Jack Dorsey. And so they created the Square Reader. Because it wasn't attacking the existing industry, the medium, large, NCR, all these big people with all the money. Under the radar. Under the radar, yeah. didn't touch them. Yeah. So they created this billion-dollar business under the whole radar screen. But now, how do you execute on that, right? So they had the idea, okay, we use a phone for everything, the news, the email, whatever, take a photo. Why can't we use this device? Instead of creating a device, I leverage what exists. Now they start thinking about, okay, the only way that people have ever been able to use that is they use the dock where you charge your thing. I said, God, with Apple, if we did that, they want a long, we have to negotiate all these tight terms and conditions with them. We have to pay some of the revenue, mm -hmm. all of this. And mm -hmm. then they said, well, wait a minute. What if we all assume the dock? Bluetooth. What if we use the jack? Mm -hmm. Oh. The yes. jack nobody owns. If I could make it work with the jack, I don't have to do any of that due diligence with Apple. I don't have to owe them any money. And by the way, if I do it with Apple, the jack is also in the Android. I can get them all with one shot. So now my question becomes, how can I not leverage all of their resources and capabilities and excellence of the Android effectively and of Apple that have these smartphones as the key modem and use the jack? Now, what does it take? Does that mean it was initially obvious and easy? Jim McKelvey no. has a fantastic book mm -hmm. on it, the innovation stack, to do that. But now they start saying, okay, but but would that allow us to drop our cost structure like this and leverage all that excellence? Yeah. So is that worthwhile? Yeah. Let's play and see how we can make that happen. They were the first company in the world to use a jack. 
And this is like one area of resourcefulness. Can you imagine? And so that's what the second part realizing it's giving you, and this is where we need strategy. We think, okay, I'm resourceful. And you think only one area of resourcefulness. So, and then you don't think about all these other resourcefulness channels and tell my team, okay, you three think this, or, or if you're only alone, you're an individual, you say, okay, the next three days, I want to think about this for resourcefulness for what I'm doing, this category that Chan and Renee lay out. The next three days, I'm going to see here, I'm going to look here, and I'm going to knock over one by one so I make sure my team had a 360 look at that. And that's because otherwise, you know what you tell your team? Get resourceful. And they're like, okay, what, what does, does that mean? mean? What does that mean? And then and, and, and you're not helping them. So as a leader, we don't have to provide the answers, but we do need to provide some tools, some mechanisms, some process so that they know how to find these things. That's critical. And eventually it becomes intuitive to us. You know, we start it becomes to think cultural. that we, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's what Beyond Disruption tried to do. And like Square Reader is one of them. GoPro is one of them in sports enthusiasts. It went under the radar screen for all the camera companies. And these are the types of non-esports, the non-disruptive, where no one touches you. You're just busy working on it. Resourcefulness. And the book tries to show you how you can do it. And like, yeah. Yeah, that's what it's about, Mike. It's well, well done. Uh, Again, kudos to to yourself and Chan. Um, It comes out this this. What's the exact? So so it comes out uh, May second. So thank you very much for saying that. And you know, just have to give a shout out to my colleague um, Chan Kim. You know, we've been partners this long journey. Um, I'm so thankful. I'm not. I could not be here without him. I hope he thinks the same way. But you know in the military, when you have a really strong team, you mutually respect one another. You know you can count on one another. And it is so powerful. And you make each other better in your own way. doesn't mean you're objectively better from anyone else's. But from wherever you are in life, you're getting better. And you're able to be tough on each other too and honest. Um, it's so critical, and so I just, yeah, I just, yeah, so it's Chan Kim and me behind these ideas, and um, it's really uh, one of my greatest blessings in my life is to have had the benefit of that team and that friendship, so. I've found, I, I think I've said this before, so 777, we we end up on Fox and Friends. I, I'm more happy for the guys that are around me in, in the team. I identify, like, team is in my DNA. Three weeks later, I'm back on Fox and Friends for the book that we wrote, The Everyday Warrior. And I'm sitting in my hotel room in New York. My wife's like, dude, that was great. Yeah, you should be. I'm like, ah, just something doesn't feel right. And I'm like, let, let me just get off the phone. And so I called back an hour. I'm like, I, I realize it. I'm like, I don't have my team around me. Like, this is meaningless. So I'm glad that Chan is your iron. Uh, you know, give the old Proverbs quote, iron sharpens iron. Is, so as one person sharpens another. And I think everyone needs that. Everyone needs a tribe. Yeah. Uh, with, of the right people. Of the right people. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, you know, for us philosophically, but... The ability, you know, and I, I go back to that. You know, we don't admire, um, and I, I, I use this out of context, I don't mean greatness, but you don't admire greatness because it's easy. You admire it because it's hard. And so what I mean is, like, we both have a very strong propensity for very for hard work. Yes. Um, to redo something the hundredth time when you're absolutely exhausted because you just don't think it hit the bar that you wanted. Like the manuscript? Yeah. Or, but it's not only the manuscript, it's everything in life, right? Yes, yes. So you're willing to go back because there comes a point in anything, you're just tired. But you have to say, in spite of that, 
I'm going to step back in. And you might need to take a little break, but, you know, you step back in, perseverance. And, um, you know, you mentioned that uh, positive-sum viewpoint. You know, we believe in, we call grounded optimists. It's like you're grounded, you see reality, but you always believe in the ability to shape our future um, and not do that. And I think if you start in your own scope, your own sphere, don't worry about someone else yourself, and if everyone did that, we'd all be marching towards a, a much brighter I, future together. I love that term, grounded uh, optimist. Yeah. Versus Thank what you. I call unearned positivity. Yeah. When you step into the locker room, you're down by 50, and you're like, hey, guys, we're still in it. No, we're not. Let's be, let's yeah. be opt- uh, you know, grounded optimists here. What can we do to turn this around? Um, I, I love this yeah, strategy. I love the mindset. I think more people, as you said, when you see a problem, you see opportunity. A strong mindset doesn't insulate you from hardship, from, no. from tragedy or, or, or anything else, but it does arm you to respond or react in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I think we need more of that right now. This, I, I'm just interested for the U.S. on an international scale because it seems like every time China does something, we've got to go head-to-head rather than saying, no, just go the indirect route, mm-hmm. find a new uh, blue ocean, yep. and go that direction. Um, and I think that would be a much more positive uh, outlook for a lot of us. And I'm not picking on China. Um, it, I, I would just like to see government institute a lot of the framework that you and Chan have designed. Uh, this could be an even more amazing country. And we've got the best country in the world. We've got a share of problems, but it's pretty damn uh, amazing. And that's because of people like you and Chan and everyone who, who contributes in some way. Well, I want to say, Mike, it's been my privilege and honor to be here with you. I love your energy, your excitement, you, your all of that. And so, you know, on behalf of Chan and me, just thank you so much for um, entertaining us. So there are, and we're going to blast this out on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. That's my that's my playground. Uh, yeah. I let Will and Michelle handle Instagram, um, and they yell at me because I'm I, I don't get very open on Instagram. Uh, and remember, this is all new to me. Like we couldn't have social media. Uh, like five years ago, I couldn't have social media within the uh, the SEAL teams. It was frowned upon. But if a company wants to bring you in, where can they best find you? Is it blueoceanstrategy.com? You know, you can go to blueoceanstrategy.com. Thank you so much. And that would be the main place for everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So please, it, for, for those that are running companies or organizations, it's part just going through the process because very few companies do it. And when you ask yourself amazing questions, I think great leaders are t- determined by the questions they ask, the quality of the questions. Yeah. I think people live amazing lives by the quality of the questions they, they reflect on. Yeah. So please reach out, blueoceanstrategy.com, but uh, you're not off the hot seat yet. So Renee, we end this in oh. uh, it, with really two questions. The first one is, you've lived a good life, you've traveled, you've, you've worked with a lot of businesses, a lot of organizations, you've seen some good leaders, you've seen some bad leaders, you've seen high performers, you've seen low performers. Mm-hmm. For you, what are... What are your top three sort of tenets, those, those keys to success that have led to a high probability of success for you? Um, I think you said hard work. I'm not yeah, going to put never one Never giving there, up, I think, is Never important. giving up. Never giving up is important. Um, and that was your old man that yeah, that, 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 that Yeah, he had said that to me. Um, but it's, it's common to both Chan and me. I think hard work um, is common to, to them. Um, a drive to want to make a difference, want to make a difference. Um, 
I think. There's probably many qualities, but I think they're um, unending learners. No matter what stage they are, they're always learning. They're always learning. They're seeking to learn um, all the time to get better. Yeah, I think that would be... So if I think about leaders, and I would say that for us, that would be pretty true as well. Um, persistence, take a punch, those are important yeah. things too. Yeah. You know, we interviewed uh, Tracy Keogh, who was the CHRO of Hewlett uh, Packard. She was the one that went out and convinced the board to hire Meg Whitman. But we interviewed her for the book because she's a phenomenal business leader. Amazing story. Mm-hmm. And she phrased it. She's like, I, I assess, or, or I think one of the highest attributes of high performers regardless of age, was they had this, what she called fire in the belly. Mm-hmm. And she said they just were always assessing the status quo. Is there a better way to do it? Yeah. And she said they could be 60 years old, 20 years of tenure in HP, and they still outperform the 20, 30-year-olds with a higher education. Well, you know, it's Bruce Springsteen. They say you got to be hungry. Hey, baby, I'm starving tonight. Uh, <laughs> we, we, I'm trying to remember the phrase of uh, when somebody's uh, sort of mantra for hiring was get them poor, hungry, and I'm, I'm forgetting the third. Uh, it'll come to me. Uh, so the last one is, you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about, and some people aren't, and, and that's a, that's a, uh, a, a totally fair uh, response, but your legacy, when all is said and done, let's say 50 years from now, what do you want your legacy to be? So, you know, Mike, I don't have that big ambition. I just think I want my legacy to be that um, my parents thought I was a good daughter. And my, um, my daughter thought I was a good parent. That was really there. A good sibling, um, a good friend, you know, a good partner. Um, I think that's, 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 what I, that's what I want. Yeah. And that is the best answer people give, the, the, the things that are truly important. Well, Renee, uh, congrats on the book. We'll definitely push this on May 2nd. Uh, for the listeners, um, go get it. Go get it. I think it'll reframe for those that are uh, aggressive, which is not a bad quality. It doesn't always have to be uh, an opponent on the other side. You can do it without displacing anything. And let me, you know, let me say something. When I work with companies, they often say, hey, well, you know, this isn't the risk of life and death uh, like war. And I do appreciate that. And I actually bring it back. I said, have you ever lost your job? That's, for some people, that's life and death, especially if they have to go, back, go home and look at their kids and say, hey, we're, we're going to have to cut back or we're going to have to move or, hey, I can't, I can't put food on the table tonight. Well, you know, it's interesting you say it, just the driver that I just had that got me here. He was just talking about, you know, I was having trouble putting food on the table. And then when you strip that of a human being, um, it, you know, it's more painful than we know. And, um, yeah, it's very real. Dignity is... Uh, Dignity is yeah. is a lot, yeah. So business is life and death. And uh, I don't think a lot of people... I don't, I don't want to add this 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 dark cloud over, over what we do, but no, it's important. And uh, the hardest thing I've ever had to do is lay people off. I, I, it, it kills me. Yeah. It kills me. Yeah, yeah. So I hope we can just keep it all life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I know that people are capable um, of a lot. But Mike, thanks so much for this conversation, for yeah. having us. And uh, Chan and I both deeply um, appreciate that. So. Thank you for coming. Thanks. All right, guys. Uh, this has been another episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. We'll see you again ne- next time. Thanks.